Uh, if you're new, visiting, checking us out, uh, my name is Tony. I'm the lead pastor here. Awesome to see you this morning. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, if you are in elementary school and you want to hang out with some other elementary school kids, uh, Miss Trish is back there. She's waving your hand, her hand. You'll have way more fun with her than if you hang out here with me. Um, so she's back there. Miss Jeannie is back there too. Feel free to migrate over there. Now, if you've been with us for a bit, you know we've been traveling through the Gospel of John. Uh, one of the things that's sort of, I don't know, tricky about the scriptures is often it feels like, I don't know, if you ever had that moment where you are uh, trying, like maybe your spouse or your roommate or someone is, you guys are awesome, I'm making it to the front, love it, thank you. It helps me to feel like I'm not alone up here. Sometimes it feels like there's like a sort of, you know, hazardous waste spill up here. It's like this big gap, you know. Um, have you ever had that moment where you like walk in and your spouse, your roommate, your friend or whatever is like midway through a Netflix episode or like a season and you walk in and you're like, you kind of want to participate, but then every like three minutes you're interrupting and being like, wait, wait, so who's that person? Wait, well, what's happening here? Wait, well, why are they mad at each other? Like what's going on? You ever had that experience? Just me? Okay. Yeah, yeah you've done that. Thank you. A little empathy. All right. Uh, so, and I feel like sometimes when we enter the New Testament, it's a little bit of that, right? You're about halfway through a story. If you're joining us today for the first time, we're in John 8. You're like, wait, what happened before? And one of the things we're going to see today is last week and this week, there's this guy named Abraham that comes up. And if you're not super familiar with the Hebrew Bible, you can be a bit like, wait, what's happening? Wait, wait, who is this guy? Why does he matter? So I want to start this morning with a brief return to the book of Genesis, where this guy named Abraham comes on the scene. And it's not quite good enough actually to start at Genesis 12 where Abraham's introduced. We actually have to start at the very beginning. So what we see in the very beginning is God creates all things. He creates all things out of nothing. He creates humanity in his image to be stewards of the earth, to be a blessing, right? To be his image bearers in the world. The problem is humanity likes to do its own thing. We get this. We like to kind of do our own thing, maybe versus what God is inviting us to do. Then you have this thing called the fall. The people, right, this Adam and this Eve, they leave uh, Eden. And then we see all kinds of things start to go awry. Uh, Cain and Abel, there's murder and violence. And you see this cascade uh, to Genesis 11 of just violence and all kinds of problems. Things are not going well in the world. And it's at this historical moment when God calls this guy named Abraham. And through him, he makes this promise, this covenant. He's not going to give up on humanity. He's going to call Abraham so that he can create a people that are aligned with his heart. And through them, he's going to bless the world. This is how Genesis 12 reads. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great na nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, God calls Abraham from this place called Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq. I think there should be a picture. You can kind of see this little, there's two theories on how he gets there. Uh, from Ur to Haran down to uh, Canaan. Now, just distance-wise, you can sort of enter this in your brain a little bit. It's like walking from Wellspring today to the Canadian border. It's about 1,100 miles. This is not chump change. Right? This is a lot of distance. He calls Abraham, right? And Abraham follows. 
And this promise becomes massively important as we enter into the first century. Right? So you're seeing last week, there's all this conflict between Jesus and these folks. And part of it revolves around how they understand themselves, their very identity. Right? So in the first century, this promise to Abraham and his descendants, right, who are going to be a blessing to the world, they see it primarily through bloodlines. Right? I am in the bloodline of Abraham, so I'm good. Right? Check that box. We're rocking it. We're the chosen people, inheritors of this promise. Now, Jesus is like a little bit different. He's like, no, no, no. It's not just about bloodlines. It's about heart alignment, life alignment with God and his kingdom. This is why we see last week, if you were here with us in verses 33 and 39, they're like, no, no, no. We're Abraham's offspring. No, no, he's our father. And Jesus is like, yeah, if he was really your father, you wouldn't be trying to kill me, which they are. Now, as you might imagine, right, this gets a little tense. Jesus is sort of attacking some of their core self-understanding. Jesus even says, you know, you guys, you're children of the devil, which we kind of got into last week. And this is where the argument picks up from last week. Jesus is like, you're children of the devil. And this sort of feels a little bit like the elementary schoolyard. This is sort of how they respond. This is verse 48. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know you're demon possessed. Abraham died. And so did the prophets. You say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim is your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they say to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. All right, so there's a lot of moving pieces here. So let's start with like the basic accusation, right? So this is verse 48. They're like, you're demon possessed, which kind of feels like a little elementary schoolyard, right? It's kind of like, you know, you're a duty tubble head, you know? No, you're a duty tubble head, right? It's sort of that back and forth. Um, and, then, and then there's this other accusation about being a Samaritan, which is kind of an interesting one. There's a few layers to it. I'll just do it real quick. Layer one is uh, Samaritans are basically considered heretics or outliers. And so they're basically saying, hey, you're an outlier. What are you doing here? You're not one of us. And then there's a second layer here. Among the Samaritans, there's a couple guys. One is called uh, Dosetheus, who basically is this like, says that he is the son of God. He's a Samaritan guy who creates this movement. Another one is Simus, Ma- Simon Magnus, uh, who calls himself the great power. And the basic idea is, hey, these Samaritans, they have these guys that sort of rally people to themselves and create all kinds of problems. You're just one of them. Jesus ignores this sort of outlandish Samaritan comment, but he responds to demon possession directly. He's like, I'm not possessed. Uh, Actually, I honor my father and you dishonor me. Jesus really tries to make clear, now his his glory, right, is not in him doing cool things, but he's trying to glorify God. 
And then in verse 21, 51, he makes this statement. He says, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Now, if you were here last week, you kind of hear an echo maybe of what Jesus said last week. Jesus says last week, hey, if you hold on to my word, if you believe what I've said, right, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's saying something similar to that here, though it's like, hey, hold on to my word and you won't taste death. You'll actually experience life. And if you've been in our journey through John, you know that Jesus and life go hand in hand repeatedly throughout the gospel of John. It's one of John's primary themes. We'll just do a quick summary just so you can kind of get a whirlwind tour. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, die, right? But have eternal life. John 1.4, right? The very prologue. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind, right? God takes on human flesh as light and life to bring life to the world. Even last chapter, John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? Jesus is consistently saying, right, hey, I have come to bring life. So when he says here, hey, obey my word and you will not taste death, he's just saying the inverse of what he has said a lot of times. Even if you go to the end of John, John even says that the whole point of his gospel, verse John 20, 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. From beginning to end, right, this idea of Jesus and life are central to Jesus' understanding. But this is part of the problem, too, for his audience, right? Because in verse 52, it feels like he is making himself incredibly central to God's plan. It's like before it was Abraham, now it's like, Jesus, who are you saying you are? You're making yourself really important in salvation history. This is how they respond, right? Very uneasily. At this, they exclaim, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets, right? Who do you think you are? Right? Remember, first century, Abraham is central to their self-understanding, how they see the world, how they see themselves. And they're like, Jesus, who are you to say that you're even greater than Abraham? Like, get off your high horse, Jesus responds to this in verse 54 with this comment. He's like, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. He's like, yeah, I'm making myself central to God's plan, but this isn't about my glory. This isn't about me elevating myself to this cool position, right? That's not Jesus's goal. And for us who know the end of the story, we know how this ends, right? Jesus isn't coronated. There isn't a parade, right? He is tortured and he is executed on a cross. Right? Jesus isn't there to glorify himself. He is there to obey and do what the Father says, right? And this foreshadowing has happened a few times already in the gospel. John 3, right? We quoted John 3 a minute ago. Again, this is verse 14. Just as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Right? Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross. John 8, 28. 
This is just, you know, just a little bit ago. He says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. Jesus is not in it to glorify himself. He will actually submit his life and his ministry to the Father and be executed on a cross. Right? Central to his self-understanding is that he is going to submit himself to God in his kingdom to rescue humanity. And he makes this comment in verse 56, which is really fascinating. He says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, you know, and it was, it was good. He was glad. It's just a sort of interesting comment. Like, you sort of think, like, so what is he getting at here? Now, to answer this question, I want to do a bit of a, sometimes like the most direct way to answer a question is to answer it in a bit of a story. So I'm going to answer it with this question and what Jesus is talking about with this story. And I think it'll help us to understand what Jesus is getting at. So a number of years ago, I went to Israel and I got to hang out on my trip with a, a Bedouin tribe. The Bedouin are really interesting, uh, just sort of anecdotally, one of the fun practices of a Bedouin is you can hang out and show up as long as you want. Just like bring your sleeping bag, hang out, they will never kick you out. What they'll do is they'll decrease the amount of sugar in your tea. And when you basically have no sugar in your tea, it's like you better leave. That's their signal of like, you're not welcome anymore. One of the things that's interesting I learned over tea, sugary tea, with the Bedouin was that their marriage practices are really interesting. So what happens is if you want to get married, what they'll do is they'll take a a cow, heifer or something, cut it in half, put it on the ground, and they'll let the blood bleed out. Then the father of the bride will walk through the blood and say, may this be done to me if my son breaks this covenant. Then the wife or the the husband of the bride will walk through the water and say, you know, may this be done to me if my daughter breaks this covenant. You know, we do kisses and rings and applause. They walk through blood. Okay. Now I share this because you start to see some echoes into the Old Testament, specifically in the life of Abraham. Genesis 15. God says, Bring, this is what he says to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all, all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And he continues. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Okay? Pay attention because we're going to keep going. We're going to fast forward to now Genesis 18. Sort of a continuation of this conversation a little bit. God says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So there's this covenant. Now, if you are sort of really paying attention, you'll start to see there's some similarities here. So the Bedouin, right, have this practice. They cut the animal open when they're finalizing a marriage covenant and then they walk through the blood, right? You start to see that here, right? What happens? In this covenant, what happens? They take an animal, they split it in half, the blood is there, and there's an expectation of blamelessness that Abraham is going to keep this covenant and that God will honor that covenant, make him a blessing, increase his numbers, and through him make him a blessing to the world. 
Do you notice what didn't happen? Abraham never walks through the blood. If you pay attention to the text, this is what it says. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. God passes through twice. God passes through as a smoking fire pot, and God passes through as a flaming torch. God is saying, may this be done to me if I break my half of the covenant. May this be done to me if you break your half of the covenant. God covers both sides. So you see, when you enter into the first century, Jesus says that Abraham is looking forward to the day when God is going to fulfill both ends of the covenant. When he will honor, hey, I am going to be with you. I am going to form you into a people. Whether you're blameless or not, I am going to make you a blessing to the nations. And there's a temple that's built, right? And the same animals that are used in this covenant ritual with Abraham are the same animals that are used in the temple. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., every, every day, every month, every year, every century. 2,000 years pass. The same distance between Abraham and Jesus is the same distance between Jesus and us. 2,000 years pass. And it's the beginning of the first century that Jesus comes. Right? God made flesh. And he fulfills both ends of the covenant. At 9 a.m., after being tortured and humiliated, Jesus is nailed to an execution stake. At 3 p.m., he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, through the person of Jesus, fulfills both ends of the covenant that were promised to Abraham 2,000 years before. And Jesus is saying, Do you have any idea how much rejoicing Abraham is doing to see that the covenant was fulfilled through me? But his conversation partners at this point, they're a little less thrilled because they don't know the end, right? They're mid-story. They don't know Jesus is going to end up on a cross. They don't know about what is going to happen. So they take him a little more literally. They're like, dude, you're not even 50. Like, serious, right? You're not even 50. How are you talking like this? And Jesus says this to him. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, we've done a little sort of, we've we've navigated a little bit this I am statement. Ego on me, right? This is an echo back to Moses before the burning bush, right? Who's God say yes? I am who I am. So when Jesus says, I am, he's saying, I am God. Before Abraham was, I is the one who created the universe, Genesis 1, right? When Abraham was called from Ur to Canaan, I was the one who called, right? And as you were sacrificing these animals over this 2,000-year period, I was the God of the universe. And today, I am here in human flesh by your side, fulfilling the covenant that I promised to Abraham. He is the author of the story and its hero. 
And the thing is, at this point, the, the crowd has a choice to make. Right? N.T. Wright says at this point, right, this is as close on the lips of Jesus to a direct statement of what John says in the prologue. So what does John say in the program? Prologue, he says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. And I think the crowd knows this. Like, they know the Bible way better than us. They've watched the entire season of whatever show this is. Like, they get it. And they have a choice. They're going to either worship Jesus or accuse him. Jesus is not being ambiguous. They have, a cho- they have a choice, right? Jesus has said to the crowds multiple times, hey, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my apprentice, pick up your cross and follow me. And they have a choice. Are they going to pick up stones or are they going to pick up a cross and follow him? And what we see in verse 59, right, is that they pick up stones. We see that Jesus escapes and we know that he's going to die another day. And he's going to die for the very people that this day are trying to kill him. The very people that pick up stones to stone him are the very people that Jesus will elevate himself on a cross to die to set them free. That's kind of the text. That's the story. That's the like, that's the story that Jesus is entering and echoing to. And the question is, right? Jesus is speaking to a people that are connected to a guy named Abraham that lived 2,000 years before, and now we're 2,000 years later trying to connect to how do these things make sense in our context? Right? How do we take a text written 2,000 years ago and apply it into 21st century peninsula life? I think the first thing I would say is I think this text actually invites a response from us. When Jesus makes himself known, and what we see in the scripture is that people aren't neutral. We saw last week, people are like, we believe, we want to align with you. And he's like, hold to my teaching, remain in my word. And now this week, people are picking up stones, right? That belief or unbelief manifests in response and action. This isn't simply about, oh, that was an interesting story. I'm going to come again because that was a cool story. And I was like, no, no, no. The story matters because the story reveals who God is. And there's a choice of how do we respond to him? Do we pick up stones or do we pick up our cross and follow him? Right? As apprentices of a rabbi who went up on a cross, submitted to God to give his life for the world. I think it begs us, right? How do we, how are we going to respond? What does it look like to respond to Jesus? This last week, I was um, just reflecting on the story of Abraham. And one of the things that stood out to me is when God calls Abraham, Abraham doesn't know what's going to follow. I'm sure he has questions. I'm sure there's lots of uncertainty. But he responds. And he goes unsure of what will happen next. And we live in this world, a postmodern secular world, where there's all these different truths out there right, that are rivaling each other. And I think a lot of us are sort of like trying to figure out how do we, how do we claim Jesus? How do we apprentice ourselves to Jesus in a world where there's so many competing truth claims? But I think that's what this text sort of gets at. 
It's not simply enough to sit in the stands and bow your head or sort of nod your head. Jesus is saying, I want you to respond with your lives. And I guess my questions maybe to us are a little on the side of like, what is a small change maybe that the Spirit is inviting you to make to respond? What is a small change that the Spirit is inviting you to make that actually would make a huge difference in your life? But maybe you've been kind of like chilling on the sidelines, like, man, those guys are going to stone them. You know, you're sort of like watching. And Jesus says, no, no, I want you to respond too. So it's a small change. And then maybe on the other side, what is actually like a huge change that you need to make in order to faithfully submit your life to Jesus and his kingdom? Right? Every week we're not making huge changes. Every week we maybe make minor tweaks. I think some of us, we've gotten pretty stuck. And God's inviting us to make a bigger change. What would that be for you? I was with, um, some of you know, I was in, um, I was in uh, L.A. for the last few days. I'm in a doctoral program down at Fuller, and I got to hang out with uh, some really cool people. And one of them was a mentor figure of mine. And he had this comment. He was actually coincidentally talking about Abraham, and he said this thing. He said, what we see with Abraham is that obedience deepens trust. I think sometimes we stand on the sidelines because we have all these questions. It's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And we kind of get this like, I don't know, stage fright sort of experience of like, oh, what do I do, you know? I think that comment really hit home. It's like sometimes actually what we need to do is leave Ur and move and make a response and actually through that process that our belief and trust is cultivated and grows. Sometimes we invert that. We think we need to like know it all before we'll take a risk. And I think this text is saying, you know, when was the last time you took a risk? If you want to be a person who believes, maybe you actually need to take a risk and through the process, learn oh, God is actually really trustworthy. Which believes, sort of leads me to my second question, which is about glory, right? Whose glory? Because if we're going to be apprentices of Jesus, submitted to Jesus, trying to follow the way of Jesus, this text actually sort of, I don't know, calls out like, how does Jesus do this? Jesus says on two occasions, he's like, I'm not in this for my own glory twice in this passage. I'm not here to build my own kingdom. That's not what I'm about. And we've seen throughout John, right, Jesus is fully submitted to the Father. So what does he do? He says what the Father says. He does what the Father does, right? He is living a life that is submitted to the King and the kingdom. And as his apprentices, right, what is first century rabbinic discipleship all about? You walk in the dust of your rabbi and you hope that the dust of his handle, sandals flicks off onto your robes, right? You're walking so close to him that you're covered in the dust of your rabbi. You do what he does. Jesus' life is a cruciform life, a life that is submitted to the kingdom that leads to the cross. And I guess I would ask us, like, when was the last time you had a moment when you're like, God, not my will be done, but yours be done? Like, we live in a world that's so about personal self-fulfillment, not necessarily submission to Jesus. What does it look like? And I would ask you, like, and maybe I would just even say, hey, if it's been a year or more since you were, like, on your face in front of Jesus saying, God, I've totally drifted. I need your help. I would say, yellow flag. 
that should sort of create a little warning signal in you of like, okay, like, I, I don't know, my conviction basically is that we all have wayward hearts. And if we're not attentive, if we're not saying, all right, God, here's my, cro- my heart, I'm going to set it before your cross, submitted to your kingdom, on a somewhat regular basis, we're going to drift. And one of the cool things about this place, actually, if you're new to us, new to who we are, one of the amazing things is just about our story as a church plant in a replant. is like, this is actually one of the founding sort of ideas of who we are. About two years ago, the original members of this church, the elders, were presented with a choice. Right? This church was on the verge of closing, and someone said to them, gave them a, a picture, an analogy, said this church is a field. God is in a bulldozer on one side, and you're in the corner over here, but you have the keys to the bulldozer. And God is standing in front of the bulldozer saying, are you going to give me control of this church so that I can do whatever I want with this field? Ultimately, is the spiritual life about you guys and what you like? Or is this about God and God doing what he wants in this place? And they wrestled with it and they say, you know what? God, do what you want with this place. I remember talking to Paul Davis, who's been here, you know, 55 years and I'm saying, you know, I think actually part of the foundation of what this place is, is this idea of, hey, we're going to submit our lives to Jesus. We're going to obey him in faithfulness. But it's not about developing our kingdoms or protecting our preferences. It is about us laying our lives down in front of the king and saying, Jesus, this is your place. And that's true for us as individuals too. This is a corporate experience and an individual experience saying, God, you can have my life. The truth is, right, it would be great if the, the pastor was above sort of the wandering heart thing, but I'm obviously not. I was like down in Pasadena this week, and I'm around these people that are like published authors and like on these like national speaking tours, and I, I feel my heart being like, I want that, you know? <laughs> I want to be really popular. Um, and there's a part of me that like wants to build my own kingdom there. There's a part of me that's like, no, God, I want to be some sort of celebrity. Like, I want this, like, to be this cool person, you know? And God's like, Tony, is this about you? Is that why you came here? Right, because there's a part of me that wants to seek my own glory, that wants to seek my own elevation. And God's like, yeah, that's, that's not what we're about. So I spent a couple hours, like, in my hotel room, like, getting right with Jesus, you know? <laughs> But I think that can happen to any of us. It can happen in our workplaces. It can happen in our families. It can happen with our futures and how we try and move forward. And Jesus is inviting us to say, hey, if he isn't about his own glory and we are his apprentices, certainly that shouldn't be our motivation. So I guess I just ask you, what does it look like for you to submit your life to Jesus? Uh, One of my mentors, Terry Walling, who was down there, he had this great quote. He said, some of us are educated beyond our level of obedience. It's like, oh, I'm in a doctoral program. It's like, shoot. (laughs) But it's that thing of like, we want to read the book. We want to listen to the podcast. We want to like know all the things. And Jesus is saying, I don't care. Saying, is your life submitted to me and my kingdom? That is what I want. I want your heart. 
Which then brings me to sort of my third point and my last one before the worship team comes up. And this is, it's a simple idea. It's just both sides. I think one of the most amazing things about the story of Abraham in this text is even if you fall on your face, you're here today and you're like, man, I feel really guilty. Sure. Guess what? Jesus covers both ends of the covenant. You are not here today walking through that blood saying, hey, may this be done to me. God has said that for you. God has died on an execution stake so that you could experience forgiveness, so that you could experience forgiveness and freedom. Right? Jesus calls us to himself, not because we are ethical and moral people who rock it, but because we are broken people. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Come to me who fall on their face and recognize they're covered in the mud of the world. And he says, I will make you clean. This isn't an exercise in moral excellence. This isn't an exercise in sort of being able to ascend and be these awesome people. This is Jesus saying, I have covered both ends of the covenant. Be a part of my people. Jesus died on a cross for you and for me. He was raised to life and he sent the spirit, right? That we could actually be transformed by the power of God. That is the hope and the promise that we cling to, right? That is the part at which Abraham is like, I am glad and I rejoice in this day, the day that we get to live in. And God invites us to be a part of that story. He invites us to be transformed by his spirit, accepting, right, the forgiveness that Jesus offers. As we enter into worship, I invite the worship team up. As we enter into worship, I'm going to actually just invite us to say a sort of public confession together. I think it's an appropriate way to enter into worship just to say, God, you know what? I don't have my act together. And the truth is, while I might think by this person's Facebook posts that they're rocking all of life, the person next to me in the pew doesn't have their act together either. And one of the reasons we do public confessions is a way to say, hey, you know what? We're all in the same boat whether you're a pastor, whether you've gone to school, whether you've preached, whether you teach, whether you've never done that, and this is your first day in church, we are all on a level playing field, both covered by Jesus and God fulfilling the covenant that he promised. And the truth is we're all in the same field and God is in the business of transforming us so that we can be a blessing in the world. We're gonna do this confession and then we're gonna sing a song about the great I am and we're gonna say, there's so a couple verses in here that are just profound. God Almighty, the great I am, who is worthy, none beside thee. And we're going to say these as a declaration of the goodness and the glory of God. Let's say this prayer together, and then we'll enter into worship. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you, in thought, word, and deed, and by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. God, that is our prayer. 
God, we pray that we would be transformed in your presence, becoming people that delight in doing your will. So God, I just pray that you would set us free, that we may enjoy you. God, that we may live lives that are aligned and submitted to your will. God, you have covered both ends of the covenant. You are the God of the universe, the redeemer of all things. And God, we throw our feet, just throw our faces and our bodies and our minds and our heart at your feet and say, you are worthy. You are the great I am in whom we trust, in whom we hope to live.